Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. Over the last few months, I've had the opportunity to have a number of conversations with the leaders of the Disabled List. Liz Jackson founded the Disabled List in 2017 in hopes of creating more space for disabled designers. She recognized that corporate conversations so often happen about them, but without them. The Disabled List is working to change this by advocating for disability as a design advantage. They strategically place disabled designers into organizations to demonstrate the unique value that these perspectives have. Through the Disabled List, I've had my first meaningful forays into the world of disability studies, ableism, and disability advocacy. My perspective on the role of disability in design and research has changed. Today, we have a chance to hear from Liz, along with Alex Hagar, the Director of Communications, and Josh Halstead, a former partner at the Disabled List. Just as a note, the conversation you're about to hear was recorded from four different locations. So please forgive any sound quality issues. Today's episode is sponsored by DScout, the tool that enables teams to do in-context fieldwork without leaving the office. DScout connects you with people via their smartphones and allows you to handpick recruits, design diary studies, conduct live interviews, and access the moments that matter most. Learn more at dscout.com mm. This is Ariel Sionflone, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, The Power of Disability. I'm really excited to have the leaders from the Disabled List with me today. I thought that we could just start with some brief intros. So maybe Liz, if you want to go first. Yeah, um, my name is Liz Jackson. I am a disability advocate and design strategist. And I created the Disabled List with the goal of shifting the way design approaches disability. Cool. Alex? Um, So I'm the Director of Communications for the Disabled List, and um, I have a bit of a messy background, which I used to be incredibly embarrassed about, but have gradually grown to be proud of. I began my work in biomedical science and then transitioned into health service design. And then over the course of about three years, I stopped working in my chosen field in order to start working full-time as a patient, which sort of illuminated the ways in which disability can actually be a design advantage. I began looking at all these services and systems I was interacting with through my lens of service design experience. And I was so excited to see the work that Liz was doing with the disabled list in terms of positioning disability as a design opportunity, because it resonated so much with what I've experienced over the last few years. So I'm now basically trying to to promote this idea of disability as a space for creating change in design. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Josh? So I'm a partner at the Disabled List, and I come from a background in branding and marketing. So I'm personally invested and really interested in exploring the rhetoric of uh, disability and how we kind of come to know uh, what disability means and what we do from there. Great. Yeah, I I just couldn't be more excited to talk to the three of you today and learn a little bit more about what you do and and really just dig into the subject. So I would love to just start with what is the disabled list? 
so I'll take that. The disabled list is a it's we're a disability led self-advocacy organization uh, and we're creating opportunities in design by what we say is designing through disability. Uh, and we do that through we have something called the WIF Fellowship. Uh, we do it through advocacy, education in the form of workshops. And we also do a lot of consulting. Yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, you mentioned a fellowship. I think advocacy, education, those things, you know, it seems like you're probably speaking at events, maybe going to actual like design classrooms, things like that. But what does the fellowship entail? Yeah, so we created something called it's called the WIF Fellowship. Um, and we what it does is it partners creative disabled people with top design studios and creative spaces for three month fellowships. What I started to see was that this this phrase design for disability really it yields more than twice as many search results as disability design. So this idea that we are recipients of design has embedded itself into our language. And so I decided that I wanted to focus on designing with disability. And that's how we arrived at the with fellowship. And usually when people hear about uh, with or the with fellowship, they often Times think I'm discuss- I'm talking about co-design, um, but that's actually not the case at all. I actually see the the WIT fellowship as the antithesis of co-design. So in co-design, it's usually up to the organization or the institution to decide when and how marginalized communities are included. Um, but with the WIT fellowship, it's really about inserting ourselves into uh, design discussions, design spaces, and so. Whereas uh, fellowships are historically intended to grow or change a person, we're actually really interested in inserting disabled people into spaces to actually grow and shift the space. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think it's such an important call out of this idea of designing with or through as opposed to designing for. And I, I, I really just like love that, that explanation and that, yeah, I guess that inspiration really. Every time I've spoken to you know, you and Josh and, and Alex, I feel like I come out with just knowing so much more about this community. Maybe Josh, if, if you'd like to speak a little bit to this subject of disability studies and, and give a little intro to, you know, listeners who aren't as familiar with the topic. Sure. Um, yeah. So, so disability studies is a very broad field. Um, central to it as a field though, is foregrounding uh, a positive disability identity, right? So I can kind of simplify by um, it, we pretty much ask the questions, well, what if it's okay to be disabled, right? Um, and then if it's okay to be disabled, then what does that say about the systems of access and representation that surround me, right, in society? Um, and because we're all designers, uh, then we ask this next question of like, well, then if it's okay to be disabled, then how might those systems of access and uh, representation around me change um, mm-hmm. to kind of match this positive disability identity. So um, without kind of getting into a history, uh, disability studies itself formed uh, really or caught fire in 1973 in the United States after the Rehabilitation Act, uh, which basically made it uh, illegal to withhold access to any federally funded institution on the basis of disability. So at once you had a lot of uh, a huge kind of influx of the disability community into public institutions and we started to study uh, broad set of academic disciplines like literature, like anthropology, like sociology, like science, mathematics, um, but applying the disability perspective to it. And without kind of getting complex, I do want to kind of give this really helpful analogy that that helped me by Simi Linton, who's a disability scholar. And 
Um, if you're driving, don't close your eyes. Um, but I want you all to kind of imagine, imagine that I'm holding up two hands. Um, the right hand is balled up into a fist and the left hand is open, ready to receive the fist. And for those uh, disability scholars out there, um, forgive the ableist uh, analogy, but we'll just kind of go with it for a second for its simplicity. And what disability studies, how it differs from other approaches is how we kind of conceptualize how that right hand, which would be the disabled uh, population or disabled uh, people, how does that fit into society, which is the left hand? Um, so typically and traditionally, um, say maybe the medical field, which has also done uh, lots of incredible and important work for us, has placed this kind of conceptualization and inquiry um, on the fist, on the disabled person. And how does, you know, how can we kind of shape and change the disabled person to fit in society, right? And we can kind of see a parallel in contemporary uh, design methodologies such as simulation. So you think about, um, and I'm kind of overgeneralizing to make a point, but uh, this kind of phenomenon of a designer closing their eyes for 15 minutes, pretending what it means to be blind, and then designing through that experience. And that still places the problem in the disabled person um, and, and on that fist. In contrast to that, disability studies uh, shifts the focus to, well, from the right hand, the fist, to the left hand, and then kind of surveys the rigidity and, and the deficits and the, the pathological structures that prohibit the fist to fit into the left hand. So we come from this perspective of, well, what new analyses and interventions should we create if we really want to make an equitable fit of that fist into uh, society? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one thing that's really stood out to me from our conversations and just this idea of like flipping the paradigm, you know, and why, why do we always think about how we can, as you've just said, you know, how we can fit these other people into society as opposed to why society doesn't fit or work for, you know, all of these communities that are, you know, really actually a huge part of a huge part of the population of the world, larger than I think a lot of people realize or appreciate. So I, that analogy, I think, did such a, a wonderful job of, of clearly articulating that. So thank you so much for sharing. Liz, I know in the past we had talked about um, one of your, I don't know if Shannon is actually still a fellow or not, but I think that there was a story um, just in terms of I have an example of how Shannon really kind of um, brought this principle to life through a project of hers. Yeah, I think, and this really kind of goes in flipping the paradigm, as as you so eloquently eloquently said. So, what happened was, is so she she has cerebral palsy, and she was invited to work at this place called it was a uh, an art exhibition space in Wasaic, New York. And the building is beautiful; it's an old silo. So there's seven floors, but because it's an old silo, there's no elevator and. While Shannon could, you know, get up in this up and down the stairs once or, or twice a day, it, it was it was a bit much for her and it was inaccessible to her. And the art of this art exhibition space really only starts on the second floor. But what Shannon quickly started to realize was is that she wasn't the only person who this space uh, was not accessible to. And so she started thinking about what she could do. And she really knew that she had two options. The first was is that Shannon could raise hell and say, I demand an elevator. And really in doing so, I think this building was a historic landmark. She was not going to get an elevator and she would have really ended up writing herself out of the space. And so what she ended up doing is she decided to get creative. And what she saw was is that underneath the staircase, 
there was this empty space. And so she asked the Wasaic Art Exhibition Space if she could have access to it, and they gave it to her. And what she ended up creating was what she called the Anti-Stairs Club Lounge. And the entire thing is hilarious. Like, if you go on her website, it's shannonfinnegan.com, and pull it up. She ended up making um, a font out of staircase. (laughs) And you go in, and and on the wall, it says, the higher you climb, the farther you fall. So she ended up really kind of turning – she ended up flipping the paradigm, right? She sort of made a joke out of it. Um, But the best part was is that in order to access this space where when you go in, there's disability studies literature, and there's refreshments and candy and stuff – in order to access it, you actually had to go to the front desk and sign a contract saying that you wouldn't actually access the upper floors. And the Anti-Stairs Club Lounge was so successful that they ended up bringing they ended up bringing it back for a second year. And I, I'm not sure. I think they're bringing it back for a third year. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. But I mean, it was hilarious. The second year she ended up making Anti-Stairs Club Lounge swag. And yeah, and it just cracks me up. But I think what this really taught me was is it taught me about the implications of research. So. If you work your way backwards from from Shannon's solution of an anti-stairs club lounge, I think any researcher that's listening to this podcast would be hard pressed to find a question that they could have posed that would have led to the anti-stairs club lounge as a solution. And yet, you know, to me, what Shannon created was so obvious. And so I think this really begs the question of is who's asking the questions and and what what are we asking? And so I, I really kind of like tapping into that deep knowing. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's so important about this story, too, is it shows how incredibly important humor can be in designing through disability, because often when sort of non-disabled people and, and I think in particular what we found sort of designers and people within cultural spaces feel when they start working with or for disability is definitely uncertainty and often a certain amount of fear. They're afraid of doing something wrong because they don't have that knowledge. They're they're not sure what to do. So they approach it with fear and caution. And that inherently limits the mindset and the thinking that they're going into these projects with. Whereas if you have what we call knowledgeable fearlessness, basically this ability to to be playful and to be a little bit sort of silly and sarcastic because you you have that cultural background, we find that can create really exciting and interesting design solutions as well. Yeah. Alex, I feel like that's such an important call out. I'm really glad that you brought that topic up because I think I think you're completely right. That's definitely something I've seen as I've like started to engage in these conversations. And I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, how can people get over that? What, you know what I mean? Like, what is your expectation of how somebody will speak to you about this? What are the words that they should use, the words that they shouldn't use? I'd love to just have, you know, like kind of a quick, a quick thought on that. Yeah, because I feel like it's really is such an important topic for for people to to figure out how to kind of navigate this space. Absolutely. And I think one of the one of the most important and hardest things that we're starting to do is to refrain from giving answers, ask more questions. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's so hard because as designers, our instinct is to to answer questions, right? Especially when you're sort of working in a more commercial context, dealing with that kind of uncertainty can be really, really uncomfortable and feel really unproductive. But I think one of the things we found is that when you when you start providing answers, you also get into this headset where, you know, you're you're ticking boxes. You have a checklist and once once you've gone through the checklist, you've you've solve the accessibility for for that particular project. And mm. I think as sort of a long-term solution for 
working with disability in a much more meaningful way, what we need to start doing is just reflecting on how we're feeling about disability, reflecting on where we're getting that information from, and really just just having questions. Because when when you start having questions, you start becoming a bit more aware of your own biases, and then it's much easier to open up a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that that is... I mean, it's not the most satisfying answer, but I think that in the long term, it is a it is a great answer because I think the reality as well is that probably you know every every person that you interact with in this community, they might have something that they feel more comfortable with or something that they feel less comfortable with. So, you know, if you give you know some kind of answer for everyone, it probably won't apply to everyone. Sorry, just to build on that a little bit too, I think. I, I think this is sort of comes back to our consulting work. And this is one of the really useful things we found is that when people come to us with these questions, we say, and, and they, they sort of always preface the question by saying, Oh God, I don't want to be offensive. Like I'm not sure I'm using the right language here. And language is such a huge part of, of how we, we think about disability and, and how we portray disability. But at the same time, I think a key thing that we do with our consulting is we want to say like, it's okay to make mistakes in this process. It's better that we make the mistakes and talk through them rather than sort of just try to avoid them and sort of brush them to the side and not talk about them at all. So I think creating that space to have safety to make mistakes is is a huge part of, of what we can do with, with organizations as well. Yeah. Fun research studies make for candid, engaged participants. Candid, engaged participants make for truly groundbreaking results. That's why DScout designed a platform that makes research more fun for your participants, your stakeholders, and your research team. DScout connects you with real people through their smartphones in their context. Your participants give you a window into real life. And you'll come away with rich video data that's easy to analyze and positioned to resonate. Head to dscout.com slash mm to learn more. So something else that I wanted to kind of just dig into along those same lines are, you know, as we... We're here, obviously, on this podcast that's focused on UX research, and I really am, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, for these researchers who are listening, how do you hope that the work that you're doing actually changes their day-to-day or, you know, maybe the research methodologies that these UX researchers or design researchers are leveraging? Yeah, so maybe I can can take this one. So I, I think if you leave with one point, at least from what, what I have to add to this conversation, it would be to leave with this idea that that information is not objective, right? So it, the information that we gather uh, can drastically change the experiences that we create as designers. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a designer, I'm a marketer, I'm also this kind of restless knowledge seeker, um, and I'm always trying to figure out the world from different vantage points. So one of, one of my pursuits that were kind of you know, tangential but was to take a statistics class. And uh, we were assigned two books in that class. The first was kind of a thousand plus page uh, overview of statistical analysis. Um, but then the kind of partner book to the textbook was uh, a book authored by Jill Best and that, that it's, it's titled uh, Damned Lies and Statistics, right? This kind of uh, old kind of proverbial phrase. And the biggest learning outcome 
that I had from that class is that, uh, like any accountant can tell you, um, numbers can tell stories just as well as, as words, right? So kind of it was really a, a nice additive to what I already knew as a marketer, which is that, that words are very intentional, right? And words, when you read them um, in the context of, say, uh, a large kind of profit-seeking corporation uh, or even uh, an organization such as the United Nations, um, you know, everyone's doing great work, but the words that you read have intention. And specifically in the context of a corporation, the words that you read, say, in a mission statement um, are, are specifically and intentionally tied to the financial model, right? It's just tied to how are you going to, if you define disability in a certain way, if you're the UN um, or, or if you're another kind of larger uh, uh, conglomerate, um, your definition um, kind of pre-establishes the methods that you're going to take in order to measure success or solve that problem. Um, so just kind of looking at, for example, at the World Health Organization, again, they do some great work. Um, but if you think about how they're trying to um, define what the problem is, quote unquote, with, with disability, um, it's, 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 a, it's a regulatory conglomerate, right? So they're looking at the lack of access to health services and the humaneness of those services. So if you look at under what we do, um, a really important bullet um, among many is that they set norms and standards to promote implementation. So to me, I mean, it's, 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 it's important to look at these sources, but also understand um, what the context is of the information that, that you're gleaning. And if you're kind of learning all you know um, about disability from an organization like the World Health Organization, you need to understand um, that their goal for that information and how they measure success is through kind of normalization and standardization of preset kind of measurable outcomes. And I, and I actually think that designers um, are, are not policymakers. I mean, some, some are, but uh, UX designers aren't really grappling with the same problems. And we're actually trying to not necessarily fit disability. If you can kind of think back to the analogy of Simi Linton um, kind of fit disability into an unquestioned world. But so many designers that I know, myself included, uh, were so preoccupied, um, one, because we're a little self-absorbed, but that's okay, <laughs> of like rewriting reality, right? Like rewriting the script, not necessarily trying to form fit into a pre-established reality. So we're not as concerned about norms. Um, so one thing that a, that a re uh, UX researcher can do is shift the perspective um, and the resources uh, or kind of the, the sources of knowledge that they're gathering to kind of understand disabilities. So the way that I like to put it is that you need to kind of shift away from uh, a biographical or secondary resource, uh, such as you know anything that's kind of written for us um, to an autobiographical source, which is uh, kind of information that is, uh, is written by us. So you can think about uh, Facebook forums on, uh, you know, disability community on Facebook, disability community on Twitter, um, memoirs such as, you know, even the one that Simi Linton wrote, which is um, my my body politic. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of really digging into the richness of what disability means to the disability community. Um, and I, I want to kind of be clear, uh, the disability community that identifies and kind of works out of the, the paradigm of disability studies. Um, and kind of think about well, how can we how can we postpone our literature review and act like anthropologists and learn directly from the people that we seek to understand, um, and then create a whole new set of of kind of understandings and questions that we design through. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's such a great call out of, you know, act like anthropologists, especially for UX researchers where so much of the work we do is ethnographic and really based in this, you know, observed behavior. But I think you're right that sometimes we can, you know, maybe kind of turn to the wrong sources just because we're, you know, trying to be thorough or maybe trying to we're just going to official sources. Like I think the World Health Organization is for so many things a really great uh, resource, a really credible resource. But I can I can definitely see how you would miss so much if you only learned about disability from the perspective of you know the WHO versus even just like going on Twitter or something and and starting to interact with the rich community that's there talking about what it means to be a disabled person day to day or how it feels or what it looks like. Yeah, and I, I can, I I agree with you, and I, I think the the fundamental shift that we're talking about is not necessarily not to go to the WHO, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I they are integral to uh, disability justice globally, right? Mm-hmm. So they're they're a great source of of understanding, but it's kind of it's kind of just shifting that paradigm and saying, well, they're all there are also underrepresented knowledge sources like uh, like kind of uh, disability activist communities that operate highly online, is highly accessible for anyone that has a Facebook group or, or a Facebook account or a Twitter account to access this kind of new knowledge. And and I think that what we're trying to unpack is not necessarily to uh, to kind of quench the conversation of accessibility. I mean, it's, it's important, but rather than quench, we're trying to add to it. So a, a quick example is if you were to look at, you know, pretend that, that you don't know anything about disability whatsoever. And, and you go to uh, an activist organization such as Sins Invalid before you go to World Health Organization, uh, you'll see that they've outlined 10 principles of disability justice. And one of them is interdependence. Um, so in my own life, uh, I think about this kind of example of going to the grocery store. So, so I don't have any dexterity in, in my left or right arm, right? So uh, grocery stores are designed to be autonomous and independent. You, you grab your cart, you go down single file, you grab your condiments. Uh, you sit begrudgingly in, in the line and then you check out, right? Um, you might not even talk to anyone. Um, for, for me, um, and like that, you know, but uh, for me, it's, it's highly interdependent, right? So I can't go to the grocery store because I can't grab something off the shelf without meeting someone. Um, you know, I'm in a constant uh, conversation every single aisle that I go in, you know, meeting new people um, all the way up until when I check out. Um, I've actually kind of embraced this idea of interdependence where I'm having to um, I get to kind of meet people and rely on on their kind of extension um, to kind of help me get get through this 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 kind of experience at the grocery store. And that kind of a fun thing that I do is is I have people. Uh, everyone has to sign my receipt, right? And this everywhere I go. <laughs> um, but but and it's really good because people are like, oh, should I sign it? It's really it's like it's a really awkward conversation, but it's like it's my favorite. Um, and what I've decided to do is instead of sign my signature, I, I make everyone sign a happy face because. Uh, no, no matter where you are, even if you're having a really, you know, bad day, um, it's impossible, I've found, to not smile um, when you sign a happy face. So it's kind of like how, so I, I think the question that I'm kind of really interested in is like, so if we, if we change the question of like, you know, how do we make our, our UX experiences independent and kind of, I think a lot of, the, there's a lot of conversation about releasing tension um, you know, we have this idea of the Amazon button or like, uh, or, you know, you can kind of think of the comparison of like uh, delivery groceries, right? Same thing. Uh, I might not meet anyone, but if I can say, well, how do I restructure my experience to be interdependent? Um, you know, then we can kind of add this new idea and this new concept to the mm-hmm. interfaces that we make. And that's, and that's completely, you know, disability led. 
So it's, it's, it's just an exciting territory that I think is worth, worth due credence. Yeah. And you know what, Josh, I love that example so much because as you just said, this is really an example of like a disability led innovation. And I think it really does such a wonderful job of showing how thinking about the world from the perspective of, you know, thinking about the world as a disabled person can in, in and of itself be such a productively creative act because, you know, I would go to the grocery store and I would just stand in the line begrudgingly by myself. But meanwhile, you're having this communal experience. All of these people are involved. And I think especially today when so often we're talking about, you know, how we can build stronger communities or things like that because we're living these very, as you said, independent lives. I just I love how I love how that that story really just demonstrates how looking at the world through the eyes of, you know, disability is really, can really just enlighten and, you know, have all of these amazing possibilities that there really would be no other way to, to kind of see those things. Or I don't know, it just, it really is so uniquely and powerfully creative. I think also uh, the, the aspect of it that really resonates with me is, is that this is this is the embodiment of Josh, right? Like this is my experience of Josh, but it's you know every element. Like this is Josh Josh's choice, right? Like this is how he chooses to go to the grocery store, right? And this is how you know he becomes a part of the experience, right? Like the happy face, and and so I think in terms of um, interdependence, like I just I, I want to really sort of um, make sure that we are um, you know honing in on this idea that it's. Um, all within Josh's control. Hmm. Right. Liz, I guess I'm curious, just as like a follow-up on that, you know, kind of like zooming out from Josh, how does this idea of interdependence apply to the research community or the design community? Like how, yeah, I guess, how do you see that playing out? And I, I think probably your work with the disabled list is a great example of how you see it playing out. But yeah, if there's anything you want to add there. Yeah, I think that there is this presumption of what we want. And I think what the questions we're asking in research are either how can you be fixed or how can we fix a thing for you? It's not what do you delight in or who are you or what do you want, right? It's always some element of trying to improve something for us. And Mm -hmm. and so I think you know, that immediately puts us at a deficit. It doesn't recognize our autonomy and it's highly biased. I, I often tell the, the story of IDEO. They asked me to come in like a year ago and they, they said to me, we want to show you this technology that we've created that's intended to get disabled people hired. And I said to them, well, what disabled people did you hire to create this technology that's intended to get disabled people hired? And they said, none. And then a little that and that really ended the conversation. Right. And and the reason is, is because they weren't interested in what we wanted. They were interested in putting something out in the world that felt a certain way. And really what I've been learning is, is that especially in research, like we're so focused on creating something that feels a certain way, that feels empathetic, that feel that hits this certain tone. Right. That reflects well on the brand. We're so focused on wanting something to feel a certain way that it never quite does a certain thing, right? It never does the thing that we intend to do, right? IDEO didn't recognize that by not including disabled people in this process, they have um, perpetuated the very problem that they had set out to fix in the first place. 
And so for me, that's really why I think we need to put the us back in use or why we need to bring disabled people into these conversations to start asking questions that are productive. Mm-hmm. If I can just add to, I think generally designers, we're, we're idealistic, right? Like we want, we want to reimagine the world. We want, and, and that reimagined world uh, highly reflects this idea of justice. Um, so if you were to ask me, well, how can I use this tomorrow? Or how can I start to operationalize this tomorrow in, in my department? And I would say the first thing um, is that we'll do, do a quick audit of like disability rights advocates and organizations around uh, your area, right? And then, and then kind of make an effort to bring advocates, both of their literature that they, they produce, their toolkits for kind of designing or thinking um, into the research process. Also, you know, just making sure that we, we make an effort to include them and make them integral to our processes, because central to that is another central idea of disability studies, which we are letting and allowing lived experience to be expertise. And it's, it's not kind of a nice to have. It's, it's, it's highly important when it comes to disability. Mm-hmm. So seeing that, you know, there, there's a huge you know, treasure trove of, of experts out there and kind of thinking about, well, like, how can I embed justice, this idea of justice into my research process as a designer from the outset? And then, you know, I think a big part of equity here is participation, right? So thinking about, well, if we really are asking, like, how can we, you know, quote unquote, help disabled people um, participate in a world um, that maybe isn't designed with them in in mind? You know, one important to that phrase is like participate. And I think you can very quickly do that by reaching out and participating with activists and how it's just it's just a huge amount of research um, and perspectives and paradigm shifts that we might not be privy to. But once we kind of engage them openly, we might find that our understanding of disability and what we create in collaboration with our community is, is completely different. Yeah, I, I feel like one thing that's really changed for me as I've, I've started to learn through this is just a broadening of my definition of include, like what inclusion means. So I think in the past when I thought of inclusion, it was, okay, now I'm including a couple disabled participants in my study, or I'm, I'm including people in this kind of predefined uh, study or pre-designed feature, pre-designed idea that I have. And I think Josh and Liz and Alex, it's, you know, as we've had these conversations, my idea of what it means to be inclusive has really kind of broadened. And I've stopped thinking of, you know, inclusive meaning bringing a participant into something that's already like a subject that I've predefined or a feature that I've predefined or something like that. And really it's meant being inclusive in terms of how I'm thinking and how I'm educating myself and also being inclusive in terms of bringing this community in from the onset or from, you know, the point where we're thinking about what we should build. You know, I think the story that Liz, that you shared about, um, you know, that product that IDEO brought you in to consult on, it's, it's really telling because it was already so far down the pipe, right? And there's this whole missed opportunity of, let's talk about being somebody who's disabled and looking for a job and just having it be this kind of more open, collaborative process right from the outset versus all the assumptions I think that go into bringing people in farther down that line. So, yeah, I think that's what's really important about this list that Alex came up with recently. Uh, they, they wanted to come up with a sort of self-check with how can we make sure that we are 
approaching this equitably. And yeah, I don't know. Do you want to get into it, Alex, a little bit? I think it's it's a really good way to kind of summarize what Ariel was was saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I started it from a point of view that often when we're looking at this question of how do we do inclusion better, how do we design through disability, it seems like this overwhelming ask, like we're, we're basically asking you to change your organizational culture, which, you know, when you're an individual person, an individual researcher or designer um, with, you know, sort of a limited budget at hand that's sort of planned months in advance, it can be like, well, where do I even begin with that? Like, and, and, and so often the solution we see is, okay, yeah, so I'll just bring in a few people um, to consult on, on this project that I have going. And I think we need to have a shift in perception to, as Josh was saying, looking at methods and looking at like where we're actually starting our projects and how we're asking the questions. You can start as simply by just asking yourself questions when, when you start thinking about any kind of project. And this is actually a sort of practice that I drew from activist work. It's a really common thing in activist spaces to get people to challenge some of their own assumptions and biases. And it's basically a list of, currently we're, we're at eight questions where we're trying to refine it a little mm-hmm. bit, but basically a short list of fairly simple questions that you just go through. It's a private exercise. There's no right or wrong answers. It's basically about asking yourself, where am I getting information from? How am I feeling? That's such a huge one. And basically this idea that if you sort of make some of these things explicit, you can start to think about them a little more critically and a little more reflectively. And then you can start to change and think about, okay, well, what can I do to to do that differently or just to solve this problem that I'm seeing in my own methods? And I think it's key that to, to be able to provide this tool that people can just do on their own um, as, a, as a starting point, because if you don't know better, you can't do better. And so often a lot of the information that people have about disability is coming from very specific sources, as we've talked about, and they don't realize the biases that might be sort of inherent in it. And so this idea of just thinking a little bit more critically about that uh, and a little more explicitly about okay, so who who am I including, but then also who might I be excluding with this is is so key. And what are the assumptions that I'm making? Because I mean, the thing about assumptions is you you make them, you don't necessarily think about them. So challenging yourself to think mm-hmm. about that is the first step. And, and just a really simple, doesn't have to be time consuming, doesn't have to be resource intensive, but just a really simple first step in in starting to change the way you you act and the way you do your design work. Yeah. Alex, where is that available? Yeah, we we have a version posted on the Disabled List blog, um, and we're actually going to be revamping the Disabled List website soon. So it's going to be on the homepage. But for now, for now, it's living on the Disabled List blog medium. Okay, yeah. And we'll definitely make those available as well in the in the show notes for anybody who wants to check those out. I mean, I think that's such an amazing resource of just a few questions to ask yourself as you're going into a project or to ask your team um, and even start to, you know, kind of change the way people are are approaching or thinking about this. When you know better, you do better. Right. And and yeah, I mean, I this that. is the thing, too, like we've we've talked so much about like all these you, you said, like the every time we talk more, more comes to the forefront about like language history and stuff. And that that can be so daunting if you don't have. The, the background in it or the exposure to it. So just starting like really simply with where am I at now can can give you a place to to sort of start looking into some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing that you put, you're putting out resources like that for for the community. So 
Guys, as we're getting to the end of our time, I, I just, I guess I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to just say anything that you, you know, want to as a wrap up or really that you want researchers or designers who are listening to, to walk away with. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can just say that I would really love for us to kind of shift into this compliance um, mindset into this, this kind of broad opportunity that, that is before us, right? Like kind of researching disability and designing with and through disability is a lot of fun. So I kind of, the thing that I continue to think back on is something that actually Shannon, I know she's come up a lot in this podcast, but it really impacted me. Uh, she said, we're really good at asking the question, like, can I be in a space, right? Can I be in a space? Um, but we're not so great at asking, do I want to be there? Do I want to be in a space? Am mm-hmm. I, am I claiming that space? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a really important question and that can, that can lead to some really, you know, quirky and amazing solutions. So another really quick example that I think of is like Carmen Papalia, uh, who is a self-defined non-visual, um, uh, learner uh, out of New York and he's an artist and he's taken, uh, he did this kind of series of art where he he uses a, a white cane and he's replaced the white cane with different uh, sound making devices like a blowhorn, <laughs> like a megaphone, um, like like a <laughs> cane that's that's twelve feet tall. And he's really kind of asking it's 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 a, it's a social it's a social gesture, and he's asking kind of what does it mean to claim space? And I really kind of love that example with the question that Shannon's asking is like, well, what does it mean, you know, if we really get past this idea of universal design and what what chris downey a blind architect here in san francisco says how can we move toward universal delight Hmm. and i think just building a little bit from what josh says i i think what really excites me is the idea of disability as an opportunity to ask questions about how could we be doing things differently so often we and, and it comes back to the idea of compliance as well but so often we see disability and accessibility as a design problem to solve or a design constraint. And I'd just love to see what could happen if instead we start from a point of what can disability tell us about how we could how we could be making spaces differently. I think there's there's so much excitement and hope in that, in that just sort of shift of perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how we could reinvent the world. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to that design idealism, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like every time I talk to you guys, I'm like, wow. And I just start picturing things differently. Going to the grocery store is this like joyous communal activity or just all the examples that you've shared. I mean, in this conversation and in prior ones, it really does feel like I know that that's a grandiose idea of reinventing the world. But in so many ways, I feel like the ideas that each of you have shared in you know, this context and other contexts really does feel like um, something grandiose. So, and, and I think that's so key too, because so often people see disability as this bad thing, as a, as a tragedy that happens to you. And I think, I mean, like, honestly, I think the main takeaway I'd love for people to have from this is that disabled people are happy. Like we, we, we struggle with, you know, social um, systems that don't include us. We struggle with things like poverty and stuff, but there's this amazing, beautiful community that, we laugh together. We, we are sort of have snarky jokes that we, we share with each other. We create these sort of beautiful experiences like Josh has talked about, like th- there is happiness in disability. And I think that's, that's so important to recognize. Mm-hmm. 
And then I, I feel like if I were to, to really have anything to add to that, I think what I always come back to is, is I, I believe disabled people, we exist as friction in the world. That is sort of really what our existence is. And yet when brands and, and companies try and approach us, they always try and do so through this certain tone, this genial, warm, happy, inspirational, empathetic tone. And I think for me, if, if I had one goal uh, for anybody listening to this, it would be to try and honor the friction and, and really kind of commit to the rigor of, of understanding disability. There's, you know, so much to learn. We do this all day, every day, and we're only just getting started. And, you know, I think there's really something truly to love uh, about trying to understand disability and disability studies. It's, you know, it's the passion of my life. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz, Alex, and Josh. I I feel like I've learned so much and hopefully those listening uh, will feel the same. Awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.